pretty sure you've probably heard the old adage that if you find a perfect church, don't join it. It's kind of a slap in the face, isn't it? But the point of that is there is no such thing as a perfect church on earth, and therefore, um, if there were such a thing, given the fact that we're all imperfect, all we could do would be ruin a, a perfect church. There is, by the way, a perfect church. Um, you may think not, but actually there is one, but it's in heaven. Shoo, all of you who are waiting on that perfect church, there's, there's a way you can experience that. Um, otherwise, you're going to have to settle for something less than perfect. What I'd like to suggest is what we ought to settle for or look for is an authentic church, an authentic church. And authentic here, I'm using the term as it's defined, where it kind of means close to the original, the idea of something that's real and, 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 and very close to the original. We use the term, you've, you've used this in this kind of way. Think about, let's say you had a, a, a Japanese exchange student come to the U.S., and I'm not enough of a racist to do a Japanese uh, accent, so just, I'll just put it in my own accent, but, uh, but they and their broken English let you know that they would like to taste authentic American apple pie. Would you take them to Perkins? I think I heard a yes. No, you wouldn't take them to Perkins. Get real for crying. No, that's not real apple pie. I mean, it's a facsimile. Sometimes if that's all you can get, it's okay. But you, if, you've, got a, you've got a responsibility as an American as American, to give them the real thing, the authentic apple pie. And if you can't make one yourself, then head on up to Wilson to, you know, made from scratch. This is not a paid, you know, advertisement, but I know they make really good pie up there. But uh, you, it's on you to give them the real thing, the authentic thing. Well, we're in the book of Acts. We're going to look at an example of the authentic church. We're in Acts chapter 2. Well, actually, we're, in, we're, we're beyond that. But in Acts chapter 2, you had Pentecost. You had this incredible moment where, where the gospel gets preached and 3,000 people are added to their number. And then in these six verses at the tail end here of chapter 2, these, in these six verses, you get a picture of an authentic church. And so the big idea today is let us strive to be an authentic church. And, and I mean that when I say let us strive toward that. This is one of my favorite topics in the world. It's almost, it'd be a hobby horse, except I'm just preaching as we go through, so I didn't come up with the theme. It, it presented itself. But I like thinking about the church as a pastor. I like thinking about what it means to be an authentic church. And I hope that we have that kind of buy-in as, as a church body, I mean, you've, you've chosen to come to this church, and, and you must be buying in to, to what we're about, and, uh, and this, this is what we strive toward. As, as elders and pastors within the church, this is the goal. Not to be the perfect church, it'd be great, you know, but, but to be an authentic one. So, there's only 11 points today. You brought a sack lunch, right? Sorry, you already ate, so... You should be good for a while. Okay, first of all, expect apostolic teaching. You should expect apostolic teaching. That's the first hallmark of an authentic. It's one of the most, I think it's at the top of the list because it's most important. He says, and they, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. There it is, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. At the heart of our church, at the heart of any church that is authentic, at the heart of our worship, you have the teaching 
of the apostles. Now, in, in that moment, at that point in time, what that meant was you had the literal apostles themselves still alive. They'd, they had just spent three years walking with Christ, and, and by the Holy Spirit, he was bringing to remembrance all the things that he had taught them. And so they were teaching people who hadn't met him or maybe had met him in passing at some point. He, they were teaching them who who Jesus is, what he's about, the kingdom of God, how it relates, how it relates to the Old Testament, and so forth. We don't have apostles with us today, do we? But we have the teaching of the apostles. We have it in the word of God, and, and, and that is still our foundation. You think about what Paul says uh, to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2.20. He says, built, he's talking about the church now, and authentic, I'll just throw the word authentic in there. He doesn't use that word, but built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So when you come to a church, if you're a believer, you say you've come to Christ recently or you're, you're moving to another town or something like that, this should be the very first thing you look for. If, if, the, if they are not preaching the word of God, the words of the apostles as they have been given to us in the New Testament and looking back to the Old Testament. If that's not the, the core central of what they're doing, then you just need to keep looking. Expect that. Hold your standard high on that one. Expect apostolic teaching. Secondly, see, we're moving. Expect fellowship. Still in verse 42. The first few are, are all from verse 42, but the other thing they devoted themselves to was fellowship. And that's that. If, if you've heard a few jargon Greek words through your time in church. This is one of those. Everybody's heard of agape probably. Uh, this is another one of those. Koinonia. How many have heard the term koinonia bandied about through the, it, it gets used a lot. It has to do with this idea of holding something in common. A fellowship is a relationship of a group of people who are united around something upon which they agree. So you can have various kinds of fellowship. But in the church, of course, what we're talking about is those people who know Christ as Savior. We're united, aren't we? It brings us together. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. We are united as a fellowship because of those things. Which, by the way, in practice ought to mean we spend a fair amount of time together. Right? You, can you really have a fellowship if it's just in principle that we all agree on a bunch of things, but we don't even know each other's names? Would that be a fellowship? It'd be a very poor fellowship. Um, you know, in Indiana back in the day, they would say to get to know someone, you'd, you'd have to share a pound of salt. And I've brought this up before in here, and everybody's like, what do you mean? Well, it means you've been together enough that if you were counting the amount of salt that you'd put into the food you'd shared, it, it would add up to at least a pound. You get to know somebody at that point. And that's how fellowship ought to be in the church. There's all of those one another passages. You know, the forgive one another, bear one another, encourage one another, forgive one another, and so on and so forth. How do you do the one another without the one another? Without the fellowship. So a, an absolute non-negotiable of an authentic church is it is a church that encourages fellowship. Why do we have adult Bible fellowships 
We encourage you to get involved. In, there are like little neighborhoods inside the church where you can get to know people and hang out and, and share requests and know what their prayer needs are and, and bear them up and, and all the rest. And why do we have clusters, which is a group of three people coming together weekly for accountability? And why do we have these other opportunities like the men's ministry and the women's Hey, the women's ministry, that sounded like an interesting... Can I come to that? It sounded good. Um, but anyway... I may, I just, I might identify differently that day just so I could, <laughs> could go. But why do we have all these opportunities for that coming together? It is because this is what an authentic church is about. This is how God has ordained it. Okay, thirdly, expect breaking of bread. What does that mean? The breaking of bread. It sounds weird to our modern ears if we're not familiar with, you know, if we haven't read the Bible and have that sort of language in our mind what was what was Luke thinking of here what was Luke thinking of well he was probably thinking of what they would call the agape meal the love feast where they would come together and they would just share fellowship around food and then it would culminate in the this (laughs) in the breaking of bread in the Lord's table and they would remember the Lord's words that that he gave that in the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed he took bread and he broke it and as we have just gone through that that will be part of any true authentic church so expect the right handling of the ordinances and meals together let's just face it we should we should get together and eat again I I like that idea so I'm, I'm 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 down with that especially if it's a pie social expect prayer Expect prayer. It's the last part of verse 42, the last thing that they devoted themselves to in verse 42, and that was prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. What kind of prayer are we talking about? Prayer, prayer, right? (laughs) The stuff that you put under the, the, the idea of prayer. Now, they were going to the temple in order to pray in many of these cases, and so it could have been, in some, sometimes it would have been Jewish prayers that would have been offered in the temple. It would have been undoubtedly the Lord's model prayer, what we call the Lord's prayer. They would have prayed spontaneously. They would have prayed according to scripture. They would have prayed, you know, agreeing with someone who stood up and as we just had with our elder prayer, we, you know, we, we have an elder pray and we kind of join in agreement with that. It's not so much about the form, although I'd encourage every legitimate biblical form of prayer, but it's not about that, is it? It's it's about whether we are a praying church. Do we understand our dependency on the Lord? You know, when you're feeling good, if you're feeling, you know, proud people don't pray a lot. And when they do pray, they don't pray. (laughs) You know, you could be proud and pray and not pray. Did you realize that? That's even possible? Because you just, it's a form but you're not praying. You're not really seeking the God of the universe because you don't know yourself to be dependent on him. People who are joined in fellowship because they are trusting in Jesus Christ who know themselves to be weak and sinful, those are the kind of people that pray. And that will be the mark of an authentic church. Expect to make an impression on those outside. (laughs) This is a different one. It says, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The word awe there is elsewhere translated fear. Fear. Now, it might have just 
Maybe Luke intended to communicate awe more than fear. I don't know. It's, it's really hard to pin down. But do people ever get afraid when they see the power of God? The answer, yes. Yes. Do you recall the time when Jesus drove the demons out of a, a, a man and, and the, the legion said his name was, uh, the, the demon said his name was Legion? You recall that? And they go into the pigs and then the people that are tending the pigs, they run off, they're scared, and they go into town, they tell everybody, and the people from the town come out, and they see what's going on there. And they've lived a parallel life with this, with this demon-possessed man for a long time. They couldn't bind him with chains. He ran around naked in their cemetery. That must have been bad for funerals. But um, at any event, they had given up on dealing with this guy, and they come, and there's Jesus teaching his disciples, and at his feet is this man clothed in his right mind. And what did they do? They said, Jesus, would you please leave? That's exactly what they did. It says they asked him to leave. Why? Out of fear, it says. Out of fear. This is one of the hallmarks of the church is, is a certain awe, reverence, fear, if you will. It's probably more nuanced in a way. It's more nuanced today than it would have been during the time of the apostles. After all, we are not apostles. We're not doing apostolic type Miracles, not saying miracles don't happen, but we're not apostles commanding people to you know, stand up and, and, uh, and so forth as we'll, we'll get into here. But um, when we preach the gospel, there should be fear. And I think we're too afraid of that. Listen to me, the gospel is good news. It is good news, but it is a fearful good news because what does the gospel declare? It declares that men and women are hellbound apart from Christ. That there is a holy God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, the Bible says. Now, we can try to dress that up, and we can try to, to soft-pedal it, but that's the truth. The Great Awakening in the United States, you may recall historically, there was this huge revival that took place in the early days around colonial times. And, uh, and of course, Jonathan Edwards kept preaching the same sermon over and over again everywhere he went. Do you remember what it was called? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And fear, fear in that case worked, didn't it? And people were in awe. And that needs to still be the case today. I mean, you, could, you can soft pedal the gospel and make the, the church always kind of tepid, like, oh, it's not too hot. Don't worry when you jump in here. It's nice and tepid. You're not going to be offended. You can do that, and you can even grow churches if you throw enough other things in. Like if you get a full coffee bar and a barista and, and you build an amusement park in your foyer and you soft pedal the gospel and you take the fear away, you can build a church for, for a period of time until people get bored with that. Or, you can, or you, we can preach the gospel and let fear fall where fear will fall and God will do the work. Expect love and sacrificial generosity. This will be hard for some to hear, but it, I don't really think it's going to be that tough. But And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Wow. That is, that is a thing, isn't it? Um, remember that many of these people who were part of that first church had come from all over the then-known world, far-flung reaches of the Roman Empire, 
Jewish devout men had come and they were there for Passover and then Pentecost which followed and maybe they were about ready to head home when all of a sudden this breaks out and the church adds 3,000 and it would appear that most of them stayed. Most of them didn't go home and now you've got this huge logistical nightmare. Can you imagine if 3,000 people were suddenly added to Grace Community Church? What would we even do? I don't know. And what if they came from all over the United States and they just decided to stay in Great Bend, which I think is an excellent idea. Some of you think leaving Great Bend is the idea. It's actually coming to Great Bend that's so good. But um, how would we handle that? Well, the early church handled it with generosity and sharing. Imagine if our church went on a camp out. Say, say we just said, you know what? It's finally time. We're going to have a big camping event and we pick some place somewhere an RV camp site or whatever state park where you can have RVs hooked up and whatnot and we said okay everybody that wants to come and camp now you would have some people in air-conditioned you know climate controlled RVs really nice RVs that would pull up and you'd have some people that would have tents maybe some people that had to borrow a tent you'd have you know indoor plumbing in some of those RVs other people would have shovels some people would have some filet mignon that was in their, in their fridge, ready for the camp out. Other people would have hot dogs. But, but what would happen in that setting? Think, ask yourself. People would, people would be getting around those campfires, sitting around, and they'd be like, well, I have some of this, and you need that. And, the, and, and needs, needs would be met within that. I believe that's what was happening in the early church. The question becomes, should that become how all churches live every day, 365? Through the, through the history of the church, there have been a few groups that have come along and said, yes, we need to sell everything we have, put it in a kitty, everybody lives off of that. It's, in essence, communism. And there are people that have advocated that and said that that's what the New Testament teaches. I would say no. That's not what, what's communicated here. The Jerusalem church with the apostles in the lead, we're in a very unique place. A unique place and a unique time in the history of the church, which was unlike even where the church existed outside of Jerusalem. You know, outside of Jerusalem, there's no indication that any of the churches, any place else, you know, in, in those days actually pra had this as a matter of practice. And even in Jerusalem, it wasn't a requirement. You did not have to sell everything you had in order to become part of the church in Jerusalem. We'll see that as it, as it plays itself out. But what was present were people who in love and unity were generous with one another. And some people had more than others and they saw a need and they said, you know what? I'm going to sell this or I'm going to sell that. I'm going to get the money and I'm, and I'm going to make sure that those people are taken care of. And that's how the church ought to be. I think I see a lot of that in this church. Now, do I see it as much as I'd like to? I don't know. You might want to look at the budget figures in our, in our bulletin each week. It's not exactly where we would like it to be at the moment. It's been a hard year. Uh, coming off of COVID, we've not really come back, and, and uh, we're hoping for, at times, more generosity. But, but, you know, I do see that. I do see, and it, not just in the giving at the church, but in giving toward one another. We have a needs of grace Facebook page that people get on and say, hey, I know somebody that has this or that need in the, in the congregation or even in the community, and people rush to meet those needs. That's what we ought to see in an authentic church. 
If you're part of a church where everybody is bean counting and, and you know, I'm not putting down bean counters, but, um, but if that's all that's going on and people are always so worried about hanging on to what they've got and making sure nobody else gets something that they didn't deserve, that, that's, that would be a bad sign. We want to we be generous, generous with one another. Expect corporate worship. It says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now here again, you've got a difference. And I, as, as we go along, I need to point out where there are legitimate differences where we're not going to necessarily follow suit with the early church on this. The church at Jerusalem was unique. Jerusalem was where God's temple was. And we know that for a period of time, not a very long period of time, that the, that the early Christians attended the temple. I don't know if they participated in any of the rituals of the temple. I don't know. We're not told whether or not they would have brought any sacrifice. I think it's unlikely that they would have continued in that sort of sacrificial system. But the point is they kept going to the temple and they kept participating in the prayers and the apostles hung out as long until they got kicked out well, martyred. Um, yeah, they were there and, and, and they were taking part in the worship of God. How many know what happened to the temple? You should. We went through the book of Luke and we dealt with that pretty, pretty closely. Uh, Jesus predicted that the temple would be destroyed and within one generation of his death, burial, and resurrection, in 70 AD, the temple was leveled and there's not been another temple since that time in the last 2,000 years. So how do we take that and apply it for us? Obviously, we don't, go out, we don't need to go build another Jewish temple right? Or, yes? I think that would be an erroneous application of the text if we said, oh, hey, they worshiped in a temple, let's build a temple. We don't, we don't have to build in a temple, a temple, but what we do need to do is we need to worship God. God says that he seeks those, you remember, who will worship him in, I keep, spirit and truth, right? God seeks such that will worship him. The church, an authentic church, will be very much about worship. And I'm not talking about flash and dash and, and, and high forms of entertainment and fog machines, which, by the way, stains carpet. Did you know that? So not fog machines, not flashing, blinking lights, but, but God being the focus of our worship. As far as I'm concerned, you can, you can worship God with almost any form of music, um, other than polka, I think. Um, it's just all forms of worship, just almost any instrument. You can have worship that's beautiful with no instrumentation at all. You can do it with a pipe organ. You can have worship with guitars and, and banjos and, and, and didgeridoos, I suppose. I'm not 100% sure of the didgeridoo. But what matters, what matters here is that we are a people that worship our God. And that will be a hallmark of any true um, authentic church. Expect hospitality. Here's a favorite place I'd like to camp out for a little while, but I really can't. But um, in my life, uh, I find uh, hospitality to be one of the most satisfying things. In fact, right now, I am in the pain uh, of what it means to be doing a renovation on my house and not having people over during that time. It just kills me. It really does. By the way, getting my countertops this week, yes, finally coming. I think I've waited eight weeks to have countertops again. But anyway, so that's going to come along, and we'll be able to open our house up again and have people in. But hospitality is so critical to what 
it looks like as an authentic church. And this is what you see in the passages, that they were having people meeting in their homes, breaking bread together. Romans chapter 12, verse 13, 1 Peter 4, 9. Command us, command us to break bread together, to, to open our homes to hospitality. Have you ever done a project, men, uh, women too for that matter, but it's probably more the men in this case. Have you ever done a project and there was a part of the project that just beat you up badly? That would be every part of the project for me, but I mean, you know what I'm saying. There's, that, there's, there's inevitably some part in the project that just is the hardest of, uh, and, and you're like just killing yourself and you're breaking things and redoing things. And have you ever done that and then found out afterward there was a perfect tool for that job that you didn't have? And then somebody at church goes, oh, I could have totally loaned you whatever. And you're like, Ugh. It's like when you get a, um, I, I, this is this this kind of a public service announcement, but like a chainsaw. Did you know you're supposed to put gas in those things? And pull the cord? You can cut wood with that chainsaw without turning it on, but it's, it's hard. It, is, it, it, it will set you back. Um, hospitality is like that perfect tool that the church is meant to use. Hospitality is commanded, but it's not commanded like, well, you just got to do your time, you know? Certain things have to be painful when you follow Christ, so, you know, next to being crucified, there's bringing people into your house. No. It, it, is, it is a perfect tool for what we do, for what it means to learn to grow together and to fellowship together and how we reach our neighbor. There's a book out there that, which, which you should really look at at some point called The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. If you get a chance to pick that volume up, do so. Her thesis really is that hospitality is just that, it's, it's just that perfect, absolutely perfect tool that came with the gospel, that came with the authentic church, and that when we practice hospitality, we're at our most authentic and our most powerful for reaching people. Just think about it for a minute. What do you think would reach your, your neighbors the best? And by the way, which would be most cost-effective? Hiring the Goodyear blimp, flying it over the neighborhood with John 3.16 on a sign pulled behind the blimp. Effective? Eh. Versus opening up the door of your home and saying, you know what, come on over. I just want to have a meal together with you and get to know you a little bit. Which one do you think is, is most effective for promoting fellowship and for drawing people into the kingdom of God? Hospitality. That's going to be part and parcel of an authentic church. Expect glad and simple hearts. Glad and simple hearts. Now, in the context here, it says generous hearts generous hearts. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. You say, well, why do you say simple? I'll tell you why. The word that's translated there, generous, is, is one of those uh, hapax legomena, uh, and, which just means it only happens once. Thought I'd throw that in there, real, slip that in on you there. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's one of those words that uh, doesn't occur anywhere else, sometimes even in the whole Greek language, some of these kinds of words, but in the New Testament for sure. And in its most literal meaning, and you know, the most literal is not always the way it's intended, but the most literal meaning of this word it would be a, a field that's been plowed and there are no stones in the field. So it's just like pulverized, beautiful, ready for planting. And, and I, therefore, I like the, the translation simple. 
simple. What, what we're getting at is, and probably the meal they were eating was simple too. These were simple people who were united in Christ, united in the Holy Spirit, united in the gospel, who loved spending time together. And so they would have people over, not so they could impress them with their Martha Stewart collection and their five-course meal, not to make this big impression or to get together to talk badly about someone or to get together to sell you on network marketing. No, it was joyful, simple fellowship around simple food because they just wanted to be together. They had glad and simple hearts. And some of you are going, wait a second. Don't we have something called Glad and Simple Heart Sunday? Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, we do. That's something we instituted some years back. It's the first Sunday after Christmas. And, uh, you know, everybody's glutted from the, from the overdoing of everything around Christmas. So we have a simple service that, that Sunday, and we have a simple little meal together. Uh, it was supposed to just be soup and bread, and then eventually iced tea slipped in there, and then pretty soon we had some desserts thrown in too. So it's not as simple as it started out. But the idea, you know, the idea is that we should be satisfied being together and just thankful for the, the basic gifts that God has given us. That's part of an authentic church. Not the Glad and Simple Heart Sunday. That's just an optional thing, but that we would live in that way. Expect worship and favor. Worship and favor. Now, I know he's kind of repeating himself. Luke kind of, one of the things you get from this really quickly by just his repetition is they were joyful, glad, worshiping, God-praising people. And that's authentic church. The other thing you see here, though, it says praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now the part that first jumps out at you there is that idea of having favor with all the people. Having favor with all the people. You see, in the early days of the church, before persecution broke out, they had this sort of halcyon, you know, this calm period of time where they grew and the gospel was just unfettered and they were preaching and people were being, you know, added to their number and even the people outside the church were looking on with favor. And that went on for a while and then they killed him. That was kind of how that went. It, it reminds you of Jesus um, in his early days. It says in, Ju in Luke 2.52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, what do we take by application from that? It's kind of hard, isn't it? Because we know that as the church went on, that that period of favor didn't last very long, did it? And eventually they were persecuted. And they did. They, they put to death the apostles and, and many other just ordinary Christians. Uh, Jesus, you know, had favor for a time, and, and then they put him to death. So what do we take from that? Well, I think what we have to take from that is we have to be faithful and we have to be people of integrity. We have to be people who are living in obedience to Christ so that, that if we're persecuted, we're perse that we're persecuted for doing good. But we do know that when we are faithful, when we preach the word of God, when we stay authentic in that way, that there will be some from outside who look on and are drawn in because of that. And I'm under no illusion. I know there are people, you know, there have been people that have left our church through the years when we did something hard for us, but scriptural. And we've had people leave 
shake the dust from their feet, and I know go around and talk to people in our community and say bad things about us. You know what? That, what are you going to do? do? Do you change your message? Do you alter the gospel? Do you, do you try to be a little less authentic? No, you know. You trust God. You, 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 you do the right thing. You do the thing of integrity. You stay faithful to what he's laid out and you let the chips fall. But God will use that. God will use that in a community and people will be drawn. God will use it to draw them. Okay, lastly, can you believe this is number 11? <laughs> Some of you are like, give me five more. Yeah. Expect the Lord to add to our numbers. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Flashback to our first sermon on Acts. You may recall at that time that I said that the book of Acts, if you picked one theme that the book of Acts is about, it's about the kingdom of God. It's about the advancement of the kingdom of God, the preaching of the gospel to all the world, and that advancing. And I said then that nowhere in the Bible, do you, and I still don't, I haven't found any place where it does say this, so with some fear of contradiction. There's no place I know, know of in the New Testament that says we are supposed to build the kingdom of God. Rather, we are to seek the kingdom of God and we are to proclaim the kingdom of God. But what I said then was, as you go through the book of Acts, I told you I'd point it out as we went along, what you find is that it's God who is doing the building. God is the one who is calling people, who is drawing them to himself, who is opening hearts. You know, when Lydia hears the gospel, it said, you know, God opened her heart. That's the work that's being done. The gospel is doing the work. And I believe that this is a, a principle for an authentic church. To be sure, there are times, um, you know, when men will not endure sound doctrine, as the scripture says. But, but I believe that when we are faithful, when we are planting and we are watering, that yes, as Paul says, God will give the increase and God will add to our number. Now, is it just always, does it always just go in that totally predictable way? Does every faithful, authentic church explode numerically? I think you already know the answer to that. No, it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes you just happen to be in a place that's losing population and, and things like that. But I do believe, I, I absolutely believe that as we live out, as we seek to be faithful, as we seek to be authentic and live as that authentic church that we are called to believe, I believe that we can absolutely trust that God will add to our numbers. You know? Not that, not that we see it on a particular tally sheet at the end of the year, but we see it. We see people coming to faith, people being drawn, people being invited, people opening up their homes to other people, and then pretty soon those people say, hey, well, what church do you go to, and, and, and can I go with you? And you see people coming to Christ. I believe you will see that when the church is living authentically. All right, so you have the... Uh, the 11 hallmarks of an authentic church. Are we identical to the Jerusalem church? No. Not, no, we're not living during the time of the apostles. Uh, we don't have a temple. We're not necessarily living in a time where there is incredible favor toward the church. So there are some differences. But in the midst of all this, you see a thread, don't you, of what authenticity looks like? And here's what I want to say to you, and I'm being absolutely honest, and this is coming from my heart as, as a pastor 
part of a group of elder pastors here in this church, I want to assure you that this is almost all we really care about when we think about how to do church. We don't go into it going, oh, oh, our numbers are slipping. Who can build an amusement park? Um, You know, there aren't any discussions like that. We're just looking at the Bible saying, Lord, how do we live as close to the real thing as as we can? What is your pattern? What are your commands? What are your methods? And we just want to do that. And and I would say to you, as, as people who come to this church, I hope and trust that that's your desire too because that's where the commitment will remain as long as, as, long as I have anything to do with it and the men that are, that are with me in that, on that elder board, that, that will be our, our desire and our goal and, uh, and how, we, how we do church. If you're not part of this church, if you're not part of the church, if that is to say that you, that you don't know Christ, I mean, what, what can I tell you? I can't make the message of the gospel easy. I I can't make it less threatening in one sense. If you really hear the gospel and you understand it and you don't trust Christ right now as your Savior, then then the message is really one uh, that that should create fear. Because what it says is, is that if you are not in Christ, that you will perish. When the Bible talks about perishing, it's talking about people who will spend eternity apart from the Lord in everlasting punishment. And that's the, we, we preach to you a gospel that includes a, a, a true preaching on the issue of hell, but also the declaration, the proclamation that Jesus Christ came into this world to die for sinners, to die for condemned sinners so that they would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the gospel we're gonna keep preaching. And if you hear that gospel today and you repent and trust in Christ, you will become part of that body. And you, you know, if the Lord wills it and you're gonna be in Great Bend, we would welcome you. Are we the only authentic church? No, don't hear me saying that. If, if it came off sounding that way, I'm not, I'm not saying, but that's what we're striving toward. And we would welcome you to be part of this church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that um, as as hard at times as certain individual places in scripture can be for interpretation, Lord, that that the clarity concerning your kingdom and the gospel is sufficient that that anyone, Lord, anyone can, can come to know you and to believe and be saved. And we pray today that you'd work that way in someone's heart and life, that you would draw them into your kingdom. And Lord, I would pray that as a church that we can be authentic. Lord, that we would not get caught up in fear or tricks or anything. There are tempting shortcuts, Lord, that come along and we just, we just wanna be faithful to you and help us to do that. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.